Hello, and welcome to the ALSI podcast, where we share the stories of lung cancer patients and their caregivers, as well as the work of doctors and researchers in the field. Today, we have the great honor and privilege of having Dr. Gerald Winehouse with us. Dr. Gerald Winehouse is the Medical Director of Respiratory Care Services and a physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital. He's also an Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. He received his medical degree from the University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey. He then completed residency in internal medicine in Boston City Hospital, followed by fellowships in pulmonary disease at Boston University Medical Center and University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. He's board certified in general pulmonary medicine and lung cancer. Dr. Winehouse's clinical interests include lung cancer and general pulmonary medicine. And as a National Institutes of Health funded investigator, he has authored over 20 peer reviewed publications examining a variety of pulmonary and critical care related issues. His research specifically studies the role of sleep and the recovery of intensive care unit patients. Dr. Winehouse has been listed as one of the region's top doctors by Castle Connolly. Dr. Winehouse, thank you so much for your time and willingness to be here with us. We're so excited to have you. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So to introduce myself, my name is Priyanka Senthal, and with me I have Drake Wong and Anish Gugulam, and we are part of the American Lung Cancer Screening Initiative, or ALSI for short. And I would like to take a few minutes to share about our organization and introduce lung cancer and lung cancer screening. ALSI is a 501c3 nonprofit that works to raise awareness about lung cancer and lung cancer screening. We're a team of over 200 students and doctors located across the United States. And we do the work that we do because lung cancer is the deadliest cancer in the world, causing more deaths than breast, prostate, and colon cancers combined. Lung cancer causes about 380 deaths per day in the U.S. alone. And lung cancer is very fatal because currently many patients are being diagnosed at a late stage when the cancer has grown and spread to the other parts of the body. Lung cancer screening is an effective imaging technique that can be used to screen for lung cancer and has been shown to catch lung cancers early. However, less than 6% of people at high risk for lung cancer are currently getting screened. The screening rate for lung cancer is much lower than the screening rates for breast, cervical, and colon cancers, which are about 73%. We believe that educating people about lung cancer and lung cancer screening is one of the most important and effective ways to increase the lung cancer screening rate for populations that would benefit from lung cancer screening. So far, we've given over 250 presentations on lung cancer and lung cancer screening to universities, hospitals, medical schools, and organizations around the U.S., as well as India, Canada, Brazil, and Mexico, reaching over 10,000 people. And over the last year, we worked with over 345 mayors from every single U.S. state to issue proclamations recognizing November as National Lung Cancer Awareness Month. And we've also had the opportunity to work with several leaders at the state level, including multiple mayors, Arizona State Senator Leela Alston, who is a lung cancer survivor, Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolf, and Lieutenant Governor of Colorado, Diane Primavera, to issue public service announcements emphasizing the importance of lung cancer screening. And in addition to our education, outreach, and advocacy efforts, we recently started this podcast series to share the personal side of lung cancer and provide a platform for lung cancer survivors and experts to share their stories and experiences in the field. Alsi also worked with U.S. Congress members and senators to draft and advocate for the first ever House and Senate resolutions, recognizing the importance of the early detection of lung cancer through screening. And in December 2022, the U.S. Senate passed a bipartisan resolution for the third year in a row, designating November 2022 as National Lung Cancer Awareness Month and expressing support for the early detection and treatment of lung cancer. Senate Resolution 863 expands on previous resolutions by emphasizing the need for efforts to increase awareness of screening among veterans, women, and racial minorities. 
Elsie also actively worked with Representative Brandon Boyle and Senator Tina Smith to draft and advocate for Catherine Zocker Lung Cancer Early Detection and Survival Act of 2021. And lastly, we want to end by talking a little bit about lung cancer screening. Lung cancer screening is done using a low-dose computed tomography scan. And this scan uses low radiation doses, is pain-free, and takes less than 10 minutes to complete. The United States Preventive Services Task Force, also known as the USPSDF, sets guidelines for who should be screened for lung cancer. And right now, they recommend that people between the ages of 50 and 80 who have a 20-pack year smoking history or more, and who are currently smoking or have quit within the past 15 years, get annual low-dose CT scans. One pack year is defined as smoking on average one pack a day for one year, and therefore 20 pack years can be met um, in a multitude of ways, including smoking one pack a day for 20 years or smoking two packs a day for 10 years, for example. So if you know anyone who might be eligible for lung cancer screening based on the criteria discussed, please encourage them to take our lung cancer screening eligibility survey so they can learn whether they are eligible and have the opportunity to connect with our team at ALSI to guide them through the screening process. And finally, we want to highlight that there are other risk factors for lung cancer in addition to smoking, such as exposure to asbestos, a family history of lung cancer, COPD, and previous radiation therapy to the lungs. It is really important that we recognize these additional risk factors because a large number of people in the United States who have never smoked still get lung cancer. So thank you everyone for giving us the opportunity to provide a quick introduction to lung cancer screening. And without further ado, we can jump right into the podcast. Thank you again, Dr. Winehouse, for being here. We're really excited to get things started. So our first question for you, um, Dr. Winehouse, is could you please tell us a little bit more about yourself and what a day in your life looks like? Thanks. And, and first of all, thank you for what you're doing. This is really incredibly important. I'm a pulmonologist and I've been practicing since the mid-1990s and pretty much have been, I would say, about half of my practices in the care of patients who have cancer, not just lung cancer, but lung cancer is certainly a big portion of what I do. So I've been working in a cancer center for over 15 years now, and that means that I take care of patients who may have cancer, and we try to figure out if that's what they do have, or I take care of patients who have cancer and are going through treatments and some of them will often have a difficult time with some of the treatments that they have that can affect the lungs, for example. So it's very much on my mind how to beat lung cancer. And when I give talks on lung cancer, I always tell it there, there are three arrows in the quiver of how to, how to beat lung cancer. The first is not to get it. That's the first thing. You, you want to prevent lung cancer. And the best way to do that is not to smoke in this country. Uh, that's the by far the most common cause of lung cancer. And so even though we talk about lung cancer screening and, and all that stuff about treatment, the best way to deal with lung cancer is never to get it at all. And so I don't want to minimize the importance of uh, smoking cessation or never starting. It's been shown, uh, the graphs are quite dramatic, that ever since lung cancer, uh, sorry, since smoking cessation became more of a thing, maybe beginning around the 70s and 80s when the public health folks were really advertising and people started smoking less. 20 years later, we can see the rates of lung cancer decline. It's dramatic. It works. It's really the greatest public health success in my lifetime, I would say. So smoking cessation is the first way that you beat lung cancer. And then the second way is to identify it as early as possible. And that's why lung cancer screening is so important because you can't talk about curing cancer, lung cancer, unless you pick it up super early. And that's where lung cancer screening is just so important because 
The third way to beat lung cancer is by treating it well. And treatments are getting better, but that is really not what you want to have to confront. You really want to be able to talk about cure. So my typical day, I see patients, uh, outpatients, most days of the week. I would say that most of those days, at least several of my patients have lung cancer, and I'm having this conversation with them. You know, and if they don't have lung cancer, but they smoke, then they have COPD, then that's the main conversation is how to get them off of cigarettes. If I'm not seeing outpatients, much of what I do is more research-related or teaching-related. I do have an interest that we've certainly done research in lung cancer and treatments of some of the complications of lung cancer treatments, such as radiation-related treatments and chemotherapy treatments. But a majority of what I do during the week has to do with talking to patients either about not smoking, how to treat their smoking-related diseases like COPD, for example, or how to deal with some of the complications of the cancer treatments that they've had. And that's a tough one because they're really, many of them can really have a tough time. So way better not to have to come and see me for those issues. You currently are the Director of Respiratory Care Services at Brigham and Women's Hospital. So could you please talk a little bit about your current work with this program? Sure, thank you. So you probably know, at least from the pandemic, when respiratory therapists had a much higher profile in the medical community, the respiratory therapists are those people who help people with respiratory problems in terms of dealing with their mechanical ventilation. So respirators is a large part of what they do in a hospital like I work at. So a lot of what respiratory therapists do is they manage the respirator. You know, in concert with the physicians and nurses and so forth, they are an integral part of the team in an intensive care unit. So for people whose respiratory problems are so severe, like during COVID, that they require the use of a mechanical respirator or ventilator. Respiratory therapists are the folks who really basically run the machines. They troubleshoot them. They're very, very qualified clinicians who help us out understanding what some of the problems are if patients are still having trouble breathing while they're on the respirator. This can be anybody who's had a major surgery. And in lung cancer world, that would certainly include somebody who's had a big operation to remove a portion of their lung. They would definitely be on a ventilator for that. So respiratory therapists are people who are trained in respiratory problems. They know how to give treatments, not just run mechanical ventilators, but in a hospital like ours, that's a big portion of what they do. And they are very skilled clinicians who help us keep our patients well supported and as comfortable as possible on the respirator, which is not an easy thing to do. They also do some research. You know, we over the years, we've had therapists that are very interested in trying to push the envelope a little bit in respiratory physiology. And so my job as the medical director is to support that and give them advice. And we've done some really nice work that really they initiated. So give them all the credit. What is the status of lung cancer and lung cancer screening in the U.S.? How has it changed in the last 10 years? Well... It's been a beautiful thing to watch. You know, as I said before, as people have been smoking less, lung cancer rates have declined. And that started a little earlier for men than women. If you look at the graphs of people who, how smoking ha has gone over the years and the decades, men started to quit smoking earlier than women in this country. And so the rates of decline of lung cancer have tracked almost perfectly along with those graphs of smoking. 
So, and that trend has, has definitely continued. Every year, the estimated number of people who will get lung cancer has gone down by thousands. It's really been a beautiful thing to watch. And in addition, and, and you asked about the last 10 years, treatments have really gotten better. You know, we talk a little bit now about some, we always talked about chemotherapy and everybody knows that chemotherapy is a little tough. You know, some people really have a hard time. It can make you sick. It can make your hair fall out. Some of the newer treatments, targeted therapies and immunotherapies are being given much more commonly now, not just to lung can for lung cancer, but other can types of cancers like melanoma, but they're much better tolerated now by patients. And so, although there's still the risk of problems with side effects, including in the lungs, and that's a lot of what I see, the effects have been quite dramatic and have really extended people's lives that have cancer. And so, you know, I think that treatment is probably in terms of curing cancer, lung cancer, we're not as close as we would like to be, but extending people's lives and making it more of a chronic illness, you know, something that's manageable and that can sort of be under better control is a much more realistic option. And that seems to be the way that we're heading now. So immunotherapies and targeted therapies are much more scientifically geared towards that person's very specific type of lung cancer. Because remember that not all lung cancer is the same. Everybody's is quite unique. So this is a way for us to know be it by genetic markers, just what treatments will be most effective. And some of the newer work and research is to look at how cancer can sometimes evade these treatments. Because you know that sometimes the longer you treat somebody with lung cancer, lung cancer cells are smart and they will start to learn how to evade those treatments. A lot of the work is in the mechanism of how that's happening and how we can deal with that. So again, we're, we're giving these treatments and we're a lot smarter about it for each individual person than we used to be. Thank you, Dr. Winehouse. You highlighted some really important points there. And as you mentioned, treatments have really improved, which is a huge success for the field. But uh, with, especially with developments in targeted therapies and genetic testing, as you mentioned, efficacy has been much higher and, and the side effects are lower for, for most patients. Um, but as you mentioned, in almost more than half of lung cancer, cases are still caught at later stages when lung cancer is oftentimes not curable and, and we have to look towards other other therapies like chemotherapy and immunotherapy, which are more focused on just extending extending life. And so as you mentioned earlier, you know, prevention of lung cancer is definitely would be the, the best thing that we could achieve so where we don't need to even talk about lung cancer screening or extending life, but rather we'd be able to prevent lung cancer in the first place. And, and that would be the ideal situation. So hopefully in, in the next several decades, you know, that we'll see a shift towards that. But I think education is probably one of the biggest aspects in the prevention of lung cancer, educating people about the risk factors. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, in my career, which has spanned a few decades now, you know, when, when I started, lung cancer was a pretty depressing topic to talk about. You know, we didn't have good treatments. It was very hard for people to take. You know, we had really no confirmed way to screen for lung cancer. There had been lots of trials on looking at how is an x-ray good enough or if somebody coughed up some phlegm, could that contribute? Can you collect cancer cells in sputum? And all those trials really showed no benefit. And then along came the National Lung Cancer Screening Trial in 2011. 
And then more recently, about 10 years after that, the, the big European trial that showed that, yes, you can actually finally screen for lung cancer, pick it up early, and actually have much better outcomes. So in my career, it's been a, a really hugely gratifying thing to watch, and it's much more hopeful than it used to be. We have much better tools in our toolkit here to, to help people out. But just as you said, I mean, prevention is always best. That's true for anything. And certainly preventing lung cancer by not smoking and limiting whatever exposures you might be at risk for would certainly be the best way. Thank you, Dr. Reinhardt. So our next question for you is one of your main research focuses is the effect of sleep on recovery of intensive care patients. So could you talk a little bit more about this and maybe some of the projects that you're involved in here? Oh, sure. Thanks. Yeah, I think sleep is often undervalued. And I think that's especially true for people who have busy uh, lives, young people in particular, they just want to stay up all night. And and I think that what we have learned now is that sleep is is one of our most valuable, is really one of the most valuable parts of the day in terms of healing. So our brains heal at night, our immune system reconstitutes itself at night. We know that when people don't get enough sleep, they're at risk for a variety of things, not just crashing their car because they fall asleep in the day, but but health-related things. You know, people who don't get enough sleep or have a sleep disorder, for example, that's not treated are at risk for, you know, dementia and all sorts of things later in life, high blood pressure. So my work has focused more on how that affects recovery from a critical illness. You know, as an intensive care doctor, I'm interested in whatever we can do to help people who are really critically ill. So that applies to anybody, whether they've had a surgery or they have a medical condition. In our hospital, we see a lot of patients who had cancer and cancer-related treatments that lead to them becoming very sick. So my interest is in how do we help patients who are that sick sleep so that they can benefit from some of those wonderful recuperative qualities that we get for sleep? Because you know, we, we've learned kind of the hard way many years ago from some early studies that people who are critically ill really don't get deep sleep. They really, you know, between just feeling terrible and all the procedures that have to happen and blood pressure and nurses and alarms from, you know, the ventilators and blood pressure issues and blood draws and on and on and on, just simply the noise of an intensive care unit really just doesn't allow people to get good deep sleep. But we see the after effects of that. People get confused. You know, they they wake up, they can be very confused and have all sorts of problems that we think at least poor sleep might be contributing to. So we know it's a problem in the ICU. What we don't know really is how to solve it. There's no medicine that's going to help somebody who's critically ill sleep well, really. If anything, the medications that we give are part of the problem. They can sometimes affect sleep in a very negative way. So a lot of what we are trying to do is a more holistic approach, is to change the culture of the intensive care unit, to make it more quiet, help people feel safe, more comfortable. You know, sleep is a funny thing. Everybody does it a little differently. Some people like to listen to music to relax. Other people would find music very distracting. So it really has to be kind of a personalized way to do it. And then we have to reconcile that Patients that are that sick are going to need certain medications. That's just, it's, it's at this point in our state of the art, that there really is no way around that. And some of those medications are going to work against them, but we have to find ways to deal with that. 
So, you know, most of it, what we have and what's considered the state of the art is really a bundled approach. You know, you keep things quiet, you make sure the room is dark at night, you try to keep people awake a little bit during the day, even if they're on respirators, you can still engage them in their care and try to give them things to do rather than let them sort of sleep in cat naps all day long, because then they're not going to get much sleep at night and it's just going to affect their biological clocks in a very negative way. So that's really... A, you know, we would love to have a, a medication that just kind of turns the lights out and that's that, but there's no such thing. And so a lot of what we're doing is just trying to help change the culture of an ICU. <laughs> just as a, a funny story, we, we learned years ago that our nurses used to give our patients baths at two in the morning. And the reason that they did that made sense. There were no family members around. They were less likely to be getting testing done, things like that. It was a very quiet, you know, guaranteed time for them to do it. But you can imagine that's a pretty good time for somebody to be sleeping. And if you don't value sleep, then that leads to some of the problems. So this is what I mean by we have to change the culture. We have to make sure that our whole clinical staff really values the importance of sleep. That's the first thing. And then we can kind of go from there. So in addition to changing the culture, as you had mentioned, where would you like to see future research or studies directed on sleep deprivation? Well, I guess part of it is understanding how we can help people sleep. And I would say that that's even true for people who aren't critically ill. You know, we do have sleeping pills, but they're certainly not perfect. You know, if you, for example, if you're if an elderly person has insomnia, we would love to be able to help them sleep better. But so even the medications we have for sleep are not great. I think that we, we just have to understand a little bit more about each individual person's challenges or barriers to getting better sleep. And that applies to the critically ill as well. And the critically ill patients, of course, it's complicated. You know, patients have problems with their blood pressure. Might Maybe they have pain. They certainly have a lot of stress. You can imagine if you're in an intensive care unit, in many cases, you're facing your mortality. And that's a pretty stressful thing to have to do. So I, th I think we have to, in the ICU anyway, we have to deal with people's stress a little better. That's one thing. I might say that about outpatients too. I think that's a big barrier for people to sleep at home. So anxiety, and you've certainly heard you know, about, I think there was a recent study or a recent recommendation that all adults over a certain age get screened for anxiety. This is a, a real national epidemic but no more so than in an intensive care unit where everybody is anxious with good reason because they're sick. So those kind of things I think will be will go a long way towards helping people sleep, just minimizing stress and anxiety. Could you talk to us about some of your research related to pulmonary medicine or lung cancer? Yeah, we did. One of the things we, we concluded recently was a study looking at Treatments for something called radiation-related lung injury, radiation pneumonitis. Pneumonitis is the term for inflammation of the lungs. So it's, it's a general term. It just means inflammation. It could be for many reason. But when somebody has radiation, for example, for lung cancer, that's the most common reason for somebody to get radiated to the lung, then the energy from radiation can cause a lot of inflammation. In some ways, that's the desired effect because you want that energy to kill cancer cells, but there's collateral damage around the cells. And so that can sometimes lead to patients feeling pretty sick, coughing, short of breath, sometimes having lower oxygen levels. And sometimes it can be pretty, pretty bad in the, you know, they don't necessarily always need to be hospitalized for it. 
but it often can affect how they feel for weeks and months at a time. And there's almost no research in it at all. So what we've always done, just give them a type of medicine, like a steroid medicine, because steroids are anti-inflammatory medications that has their own set of side effects naturally. And it's not great for long term. So for people who have these symptoms for a long time, they can have a lot of side effects. So we did a study recently in concert with some of the other cancer centers around the country, looking at another type of medication to see if that would help to mitigate some of the side effects of radiation. So that's one example. There's a lot of research going on, and I'm not a scientist myself, so I'm not as involved in that kind of research of this, these targeted therapies and and sometimes the mechanism for how cancer cells can escape or sort of evade the cancer treatments that they're on. I would say that's that's one of the more hopefully impactful and exciting areas of research right now. But as a clinician, I'm just a clinician. I don't, I'm not a bench scientist. I'm much less involved in those types of research. Thank you for sharing, Dr. Reinhouse. And so you mentioned that you are, as a clinician, you do frequently see lung cancer patients or patients you know, displaying maybe some symptoms of lung cancer. And so can you share some of the common conditions that you see patients come in with or some of the common symptoms, as well as maybe some of the common tests that patients undergo, which might be like a lung function test? Oh, sure. Yeah, well, first of all, symptom-wise, you know, the tough part of lung cancer is that it doesn't cause symptoms right away. That's what makes it so hard to figure out early if they have it. And I usually tell people if if they're having symptoms, it's probably too late. You know, it, it probably means that the cancer has spread to an area where it's starting to affect their organs. If it just is a little tiny spot and it's really, you know, at that early stage, it's probably not noticeable. So I wouldn't wait for symptoms. It can cause a cough, depending on where it's located. It can cause shortness of breath because it can sometimes create a collection of fluid in the chest. Again, these are more advanced stages of it though. Sometimes patients will have a a persistent cough, even cough up a little bit of blood that can sometimes be a first sign of it. But even just a cough that doesn't go away can sometimes be an early sign that it's there. The tests that we do, usually the first test that somebody would likely get is an X-ray or CAT scan. The CAT scan gives us much, much greater detail So we can learn quite a bit from a CAT scan and CAT scans are relatively harmless. You know, there's a little bit of radiation involved, but not enough that that would be of great concern. And it can pick up things as small as a millimeter. So x-rays, we can see things up to about a centimeter or so, but CAT scans really give us quite wonderful detail of what might be abnormal. It also can tell us about the lymph nodes that are in the chest. And sometimes that's very important for us to know because if cancer is localized in one lung, it's very possibly curable. If it has started to spread, the first place it often spreads is to those lymph nodes. So CAT scans really give us the greatest amount of information. There are PET scans, and PET scans are another way of imaging the lungs. The difference is that what PET scans do is they look for metabolically active tissue. So it's a sugar-based injection that you get that lights up in areas of cells that are turning over very fast. And of course, cancer cells do that. It's not the only thing, but if something is apparently very metabolically active, we will worry that it could be cancerous. 
So PET scans give somewhat complementary information. It also gives us information about whether it might have spread elsewhere because when we do PET scans, we really image most of the body. So we can see if it has spread to other parts of the body, and then that might be a good place for us to do a biopsy, for example, because lung biopsies are a little tricky. And then pulmonary function tests you mentioned too. We do pulmonary function tests for a variety of reasons. And in this context, it would often be to prepare somebody for surgery. So if somebody has lung cancer, we don't want them to have lung cancer, but if they have lung cancer, what we hope for them is that it can be cured and the way that we cure it is by removing it, having a surgeon cut it out. But before that can happen, we have to make sure that their lung function is okay. We don't want to cut out a piece of a lung for somebody who's then going to be left debilitated because they don't have enough lung left. So we do lung function tests, which can measure things like their lung capacity and whether the oxygen gets transferred in a process called diffusion from the air sacs in the lungs and into the bloodstream. Those are measures, those are the functions of the lung that are so critical. And we have to make certain that if a section of the lung is removed, they'd still have enough lung left to have a good quality of life. So a lung function test really helps us enormously with that. So it's also complementary information. You can sort of think of CAT scans and PET scans as what lungs look like and pulmonary function tests is how they work. Thank you so much. That was a wonderful explanation. So now we'll move on to a couple of questions that we received from our audience members. And so I, we have some live audience here as well. So if you have any questions, feel free to unmute and just ask them or put them in the chat. Our first audience question is, why did you choose to go into pulmonary and critical care medicine? Yeah, you know, this is one of those things, you know, of sort of confronting your worst fear. So when I started my training, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And then the more I got into my residency in particular, the more I had to take care of patients who had difficulty breathing. And that's a pretty hard thing to watch, somebody struggling to breathe. And so rather than sort of avoid it, I guess, which would be the other way to go, I really wanted to make sure I knew how to treat it and that it didn't frighten me. I knew what all we had to do to help somebody in those circumstances. And so that really led me into the ICU too, because that's really where you see people who have the greatest problems breathing. And I also, you know, I'm also was interested in the technology and the control that you can have in an intensive care unit where you're really monitoring people moment to moment, heartbeat to heartbeat. It was, it's just a nice place to, to work and feel like you've got things under control, even though that's not always true. You know, and I see you, some people will get sicker despite your very best efforts, but I at least wanted to know that I could offer everything possible for people in those terrible circumstances. Unfortunately, lung cancer is associated with the stigma of being a smoker's disease. So how do we educate people about the risks of smoking, but also ensure that we are not indirectly contributing to the stigma around lung cancer? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, you never want to shame anybody. And you sometimes I, I just want to throttle people <laughs> who are smoking because you just know it's so terrible for them. But it's it's really a, a profoundly difficult habit to quit. I've come to realize that there it just some people just have so much trouble. And really, I have patients who have tried hypnosis and all the different nicotine replacement therapies, and they know it's bad for them. But there's something just so addictive about it 
either because of the chemical addiction itself or the habit, the whatever it is, I don't know how you you really resolve a stigma anywhere. How do you how do you non-stigmatize something? It's my job to make them feel like I'm not judging them, of course, and I don't. I, I think we have to understand why it's happening. And most people don't want to smoke. I would say, I think even people who are smoking know that it's going to hurt them. Sometimes they have other mental health issues that make it even more challenging to quit. And our job, I think all of us is is certainly not to make them feel bad about it. It's just to try to help them. And, you know, people make decisions and, you know, everybody, every adult can make their own choices. And some people choose high risk behaviors. Bungee jumping is a high risk behavior cigarette smoking is a high risk behavior. And I, I can't force anybody to quit, but I can certainly plead with them and educate them. And I think that's really the best we can do for them. But certainly, you're right, it's it's stigmatized. You know, you, you see people who now have to step outside and smoke. It's raining and cold. They look miserable. But, you know, all we can do is our best effort to make them understand what the risks are, and then they have to make their own choices. And from my standpoint, as one of their physicians, I can try to help them get the help that they need, which is very variable. You know, some people will quit with some of the nicotine replacement therapies. Others will respond better to group therapies, for example. And sometimes it's a very iterative process where They'll quit for a little while, then they'll go back to smoking, and then they'll quit again. But if they can do that, then usually they can get to a point where they can quit. And I, I think that smoking cessation, it's not sexy for you know anybody. It's not exciting work. It's, it's just so important, though, that we really have to, I think, pay more attention to it because it does work. Just as I said at the outset, it absolutely works. It is working on a population level, and we just have to keep at it. So for our next question, it is related to smoking cessation. So right now, efforts to educate people about lung cancer screening are frequently not paired with efforts to help patients achieve smoking cessation. So how can we best combine smoking cessation efforts with lung cancer screening efforts? Well, you know, any institution that is sponsored by Medicare as a, as a lung cancer screening program is supposed to have a smoking cessation portion as part of that. So in the National Lung Screening Trial, that was part of it. It was smoking cessation was baked into the process. They, they came for their lung cancer screening CAT scans. They were, you know, talked about, you know, what the risks and so forth of the CAT scan was. Lung cancer screening was integral to that process. And every recommendation since then has said, if you're going to be a lung cancer screening program and Medicare is going to reimburse and sponsor your pro you have to have certain things you have to be able to have a database you have to be able to do smoking cessation and that's a portion of it so i think that the government and all the trials have recognized its importance and it just has to be reinforced i, I think there's no question that that is as important as anything because you know the longer you quit smoking the lower your risk of getting lung cancer is so it's not the case that if you smoke now, you're doomed. You can quit any time, even after you've gotten lung cancer, you can still reduce your chances of getting it again. So there's no bad time to quit smoking. It should be a part of absolutely every lung cancer screening program. Good to bring it up. Thank you. Right. Thank you for highlighting that, Dr. Winehouse. As you mentioned, you know, smoking cessation can 
greatly reduce an individual's risk of, you know, getting lung cancer in the first place, but also getting other cancers, they're also increased by by smoking. And I think one of the best ways to educate people is, is through more education <laughs> programs, both in schools, in workplaces, in communities. And while there unfortunately has been a you know, strong stigma around lung cancer, I think it was more important to focus on how we talk about smoking in relation to lung cancer. So in the medical setting, when we refer to a patient who might have a smoking history, instead of, you know, instead of saying something like we have a 48 year old female smoker, you know, using first person language, like here is a 48 year old female individual who has smoked or has a smoking history, just small changes in the way we we talk about smoking. And I know with a lot of the patients that we've had on our podcast have mentioned that when they do share their diagnosis with others, oftentimes the first question that they receive is, you know, did you smoke? Or I didn't know that you smoked or, or something along those lines. And I don't think those those questions, you know, are coming from a bad place. But just wording like that can definitely contribute to the stigma and just being raising awareness about the difficulty of smoking cessation from a lot of individuals who might not be going through an addiction to smoking, it's hard to realize just how difficult smoking cessation is. It's more than just willpower or, or just desire to quit smoking, but there really are emotional, physical, psychological, physiological effects of trying to quit smoking. And so it, it is very difficult. And I think more, more education on that, how, how we can better talk about smoking and smoking cessation, I think that can really go a long way. And, and as you mentioned, just educating people, having more programs in place, but better resource programs in place to help prevent smoking and, and encourage smoking cessation is really important. So I don't think we should step down from talking about the importance of smoking cessation, but just be more cognizant, as you mentioned, about how we go about it. Yeah, thank you. You know, I, I think my generation probably has a lot to learn. You know, we we trained and sort of ra- were raised in medicine to do just that. We, we talk about, we labeled people, you know, like you said, a 50-year-old smoker, and and that's not right. And I'm hoping that your generation does better than mine, because it really does sort of stigmatize and label people in a way that is certainly not constructive. These are problems. These are, are, are a form of addiction, and it's, you know, it should be treated as such, just as any other addiction is. And people, these people need help, not, like you said, stigma and labeling and shaming and whatever else it is. So hopefully their your generation will be a little more enlightened than mine yeah thank you i think we, we've been we've made a lot of progress in, in the last couple of years in terms of just the language and and education so hopefully that will continue and so the next question we have is related to the lung cancer screening guidelines and how we can better optimize them and so we talked about the screening guidelines near the beginning of the podcast but they were recently updated in 2021 and the changes included lowering the minimum age required to be eligible for screening and then also lowering the pack here smoking requirement for anyone who might not be familiar. But this change resulted in an increase in the number of individuals uh, in the U.S. who are eligible to more than 14 million. So that was a huge increase. And that definitely has opened the doors for more individuals who would be at high risk to get screened. But there are still a lot of limitations with the current lung cancer screening guidelines. And several studies have shown that a lot of racial minorities and women who are actually diagnosed with lung cancer are more likely to have not been eligible for a lung cancer screening and due to some of the requirements for screening eligibility, which are the 20-pack year smoking history and having quit within the last 15 years or, or to be currently smoking. And so oftentimes racial minorities and women either don't meet the smoking pack year history requirement or have quit for more than 15 years. 
And, and these are individuals at high risk that have gotten lung cancer, but would not have been eligible for screening. So that's a huge issue and, and a huge population that we are missing. And so Dr. Winehouse, just from your experience and your expertise, what are your insights or thoughts on how we can either change the screening guidelines, improve them? We'd love to hear your ideas on this. Yeah, the, the U.S. Preventative Task Force update was, I think, based on the European studies that came out just maybe two years ago. And that was great. You know, it lowered the age, but there is a long way to go. You know, you're absolutely right. Women tend to get lung cancer at earlier ages sometimes, and they would not qualify for lung cancer screening. We know that people who have certain occupation-related exposures, asbestos is one that are not included in anybody's guidelines. There are many, you know, in Risk factors are variable around the world. You know, industrial countries that use coal as one of their predominant energy sources have a higher risk of lung cancer. So how do you how do you quantify something like that? Pollution is certainly a risk. But we do know some. And, and you know, radon's a tricky one because we don't know. And that's one of the more common ones in this country. But we do know that there are certain people at higher risk, fam- people with family histories. We know that certain demographics are at higher risk. And, and, and we should probably incorporate those into our guidelines because to some extent that they, they, they are excluding important demographic groups. They're stacked against people in some ways, younger women, certain racial minorities. And then there's the issue of disparities in access to lung cancer screening CAT scans. And we know that, you know, there are certainly centers that are doing lung cancer screening in higher population centers but what about you know r- rural mid mid america and you know some of those are much more likely to include racial demo- you know certain demographics poor possibly or just pl- plain people who just like the woods you know or farmers or whatever they don't have the same access and and that kind of challenge has always been true in medicine and it's most especially true in this case because we do know that lung cancer screening can save lives. We know that at least in the National Lung Cancer Screening Trial, which was the US trial published that came out in 2011, it benefited every racial group in the study. And in fact, it may have benefited some more than others. So everybody benefited, women, men, black, white, everybody. But certain racial minorities did even a little better and had a greater impact one thinking was that it was their first access to medical care. You know, it was a, a way in through this study. So there's really, I, I think there does have to be, like in so many areas in medicine, a concerted effort to reach out to patients who are somehow in a position where they don't have the same access to care. This is one of those areas that is so important for them. It does save lives. Right. And this is something that our our team at Alsi has tried to think about for a while now. And And as you mentioned, maybe states with fewer lung cancer screening centers or in more rural areas, access to lung cancer screening centers is going to be a lot harder. And when you have to drive several hours to get to a screening center, that can definitely, you know, make things harder, especially if you have to take time off of work and and have family responsibilities. And especially for individuals who are are working or, or just don't have as flexible of a work schedule, just taking time off of work to even just get screened can be a barrier in and of itself. And one thing that we have tried to implement within LC is starting a lung cancer screening fund where it's not going to cover everything, but at least just covering transportation and parking for individuals who are wanting to get screened and, and trying to work with cancer centers to see if we can encourage them to open their, their doors, for example, on Saturday when people might not have 
you know, work commitments and things like that. So there's a lot of work in, in terms of how do we improve access to lung cancer screening for all individuals and, and make it easier to actually get screened for individuals who, who want to and need to. Yeah, I think I would love to see sort of mobile units going around to some of the more underserved areas and offer it up for free or whatever as sponsored by state or local governments. But um, that might be one way to do it. It may be the only way to do it, honestly, because some people are just so remote that it would be hard to get hard to see how, how on a large scale they could access a big medical center that might have screening programs. Right. There was one mobile screening van that parked in the sh- parking lot of a shopping center and found really great uptake and interest. So I think there are really creative ways like like that, that we could address some of those issues. Another way might be that there are there is research, by the way, into other forms of lung cancer screening, you know, blood tests and things like that. And that doesn't necessarily remove the access issue, but it may make it a little easier for some people or more palatable, let's say, for some and gets away from some of the radiation related problems and it may be less cost. So there, hopefully on the horizon, there will be other ways to do lung cancer screening, or at least will give us other options that might make it more accessible for some. And we, we didn't talk about lung cancer risk prediction models in, in this podcast, but we've talked about them frequently in our other podcasts. And so just for individuals who might not be familiar, lung cancer risk prediction models are another approach to identifying individuals who might be at high risk for lung cancer. And so one of the common well-studied models is the PLCOM 2012 model. And within risk prediction models such as this one, we're able to take into account more risk factors for lung cancer, such as a family history of lung cancer, other lung diseases, and, and even other variables like education and income. And so the lung cancer risk prediction models have been more implemented in other countries and not so much uh, in the U.S. And one of the barriers to implementation in the U.S. has just been access to the other variables and other information needed for these models, which might not be as easily accessible as a smoking history in a patient's electronic health record. And so Dr. Winehouse, do you see lung cancer restriction models playing a role in, in lung cancer screening in future years? And do you have any, any thoughts on how we can address this implementation barrier? Well, I hope so. I mean, there's a lot of risk models out there and, you know, some of them are, are very, they're very variable, you know, um, there's a VA risk prediction model. There's the Mayo Clinic risk prediction model. And when they've been compared, you know, if you present, let's say, a vignette of some, of one person and then show their CAT scan and look at what what is predicted is likely cancer or not, the, the results are really quite variable. So I, I do think we have a long way to go. I think it's it's probably true that the the models have to be tailored towards the population that it serves. So, for example, a VA population, veterans hospital population is mostly men, mostly older, a lot of smokers. And so that group is very likely to have a higher risk of lung cancer than, let's say, a more a younger, less smoking exposed population. So they do have to have some ability to cater to the, the demographic that it serves. But there's a long way to go. They're they're pretty inaccurate in some ways. And I think we have to probably incorporate more targeted information, you know, from genetics to occupation-related exposures and things that we may not have that very readily accessible. One of the problems that we have too is that a lot of 
These models are based on our electronic medical record. And at least one study I recently uh, saw showed how inaccurate the medical record can be for just smoke exposure itself, you know, packed years of smoking, often underestimating somebody's smoking exposure. So yeah, these are tough problems to deal with. We would like to see as many possible risk factors incorporated and somehow it have it would have to be nimble enough to adapt to the the person or the at least the population that it's serving. So yeah, a lot of work to do on that. We're almost out of time. So our last question will be, what is the most important piece of advice you would give to a lung cancer patient who may be listening? Yeah, if you already have lung cancer, listen to your doctor, get help it, you know, make sure you go to an oncologist and get the best possible advice. Get a second opinion if you don't like the first one. And then, you know, treatment is getting better and better. They're getting better and better at treating the the side effects. So if you're still stuck in this idea that you're going to get chemotherapy and feel terrible, you know, you may have to change uh, your mindset a little bit because it isn't like that anymore. There is chemotherapy sometimes for some people. But many people are getting their treatments and going to work later that same day. So if you have lung cancer, get it treated. Things are much, much better than they used to be. People are living longer with it. All I can tell you is just make sure you get the best possible care. It has truly been a pleasure and honor to talk with you, Dr. Winehouse, and learn from the wealth of knowledge and experience you have in this field. We appreciate all the work and research you're doing. It's been my pleasure and thanks so much for all you do. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode of the LC podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Please keep an eye out for our upcoming podcasts and events, which will be listed on our website, www.alcsi.org. Thank you and have a great day, everyone.